Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening. I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight from... New York City. We have got an audience full of smart people, and we will invite them up one at a time to tell us things that are interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. And if everything goes according to plan, we will all be a little bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host, you know her as a chef on Iron Chef and as a judge on Chopped. Please welcome Alex Guarnaschelli. Hi, Alex. Let's see what we know about you so far, Alex. We know you grew up here in Manhattan across the street from the Carnegie Deli and that one of your earliest food memories was a corned beef pastrami and chicken liver on rye. Oh, yeah. We know you learned to cook from your mom, the legendary cookbook editor Maria Guarnaschelli, and that your latest cookbook is called The Home Cook, Recipes to Know by Heart. We know that you went to culinary school in France and worked at a few restaurants before taking over the acclaimed butter here in New York. We know that even though you've achieved TV chef stardom, you still have to deal with critics. Your daughter, for instance, when she was eight years old, reviewed a fried egg you made her. I quote, delicious, but slightly overcooked. <laughs> so, Alex Guarnaschelli, tell us something we don't know about you, please. Um, I really love those icy gas station slushies. <laughs> the blue ones. Yeah, only blue. That's Identified as raspberry, but is not any identifiable connection to anything that was ever edible. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's something about a gas station in general, yeah. the coffee, yeah. the, the treatment, the service. Alex, uh, we're very glad you're here tonight. Tell me something I don't know. Here's how it's going to work. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I will hear them out. We'll ask some questions, and eventually our live audience will pick a winner. Victory will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Probably. Number two, was it worth knowing? I think it's going to be. And number three, was it demonstrably true? No. To help Alex with that demonstrably true part, would everyone please welcome our real-time fact checker, Sean Ramosferum. Sean is a reporter for WNYC Studios More Perfect, the Radiolab spinoff about the Supreme Court. So, Sean, are you a uh, cooking-at-home kind of guy or eating-out kind of guy? I recently ended up in Orlando for three days with four Chileans who were really excited to eat at some familiar franchise restaurants. And um, you'll love this, Alex. They were like, the four meals we ate while I was there were uh, Pizza Hut, Johnny Rockets, Hooters, and then to top it all off, the world's first crusty burger at <laughs> Universal Studios. So I'm really happy that... Number one? Um, I mean, what was the best? Come on. I mean, the best or the worst best? You know what I mean? The best, period. Hooters makes the most I enjoyable food. I knew you food. were going to say Hooters. <laughs> no wonder why. Facts. Just facts. All right, then. It is time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Our theme tonight, food. What we eat how we eat it, where it comes from, you name it. Would you please welcome our first guest, John McWhorter. (laughs) 
John McWhorter, um, happy to say we've had you on the show before, but for those who don't know you, uh, tell us what you do. I am a linguistics professor at Columbia University. I host um, Lexicon Valley, which is Slate's linguistics podcast, and I write some books and some editorials here and there. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And I like me a Slim Jim. It's quite good. You buy them at gas stations. <laughs> At the gas I station eat is them a very all the time. Yeah, it's an endearing place. For I... all. all right, John, uh, I'm ready. So are Alex Gornishelli and Sean Ramosferum. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Why is it that we don't talk about eating cow? That's what we're eating, but we say beef. You don't usually talk about eating pig. You talk about eating pork. There's something called mutton, which you just know, but really it's sheep. Why can't you say, I'm eating deer? You have to say venison. And that comes from the fact that the Norman French were in charge of England for a good long time. They were the ones who ate the food that had been prepared by what were for a long time lowly English speakers. And so, after a while, you started calling food the name of what these occupying foreigners called it. So, you ate pork, le pork, rather than pig. And it wasn't only meat. For example, if you talked about vegetables as an old English speaker, you called it wart, as in St. John's wart, or something like that. They didn't call it vegetables. That was a French word. It was le vegetable. What about chicken? Is that just an exception? Or? Chicken is just this random exception. If we were going to be uniform, we would call chicken something like pool, but we just don't. But right? in French, in they French, say they, right, poulet. poulet right? Yeah, poulet, we don't want to say that. And but, also, like, <laughs> ma poule is like my chickadee. Uh, That's right. So it's a class thing, though, is what you're saying, right? The Very Norman, much so. Okay, so the language that... Uh, was chosen. Was it intentional? Was the language for those things chosen to distance themselves from the lowly laborers who were actually doing the work then? Well, it was also a matter of the people who you were serving it to referred to these things with the French name so often that after a while you started calling it that. And once one generation hears you doing that, then that is the name of it, especially before there was writing. And class got into all sorts of things. So, for example, asparagus. It's kind of an odd word. It's an odd vegetable, odd word, like library, February, zebra, asparagus. The reason that that word is strange... I love how you think those all have something in common when we're just sitting here baffled, but I trust you. Have you ever noticed February is annoying to say? You want to say February and say you have to say February. It's it's this odd word. And zebra... I don't don't think you actually do have to say it like that, but... (laughs) What, what is that in my mind? With zebra? But the, or zebra, it's kind of odd. And if you know any British people, they say zebra. And you kind of wonder, well, which is it? And it's just an odd word. Why isn't that thing called weird striped horse? Are, are you sure you're a linguist or just a guy who compiles lists of words he doesn't like? <laughs> don't, you, don't you realize that there's a slight overlap? And with asparagus, it used to be you could call them spurges. It was borrowed from Latin, and it does a little pit stop, probably at a gas station, through French. And so (laughs) asparagus becomes spurges. Give me some spurges. That's a word. But then some tool decided that we had to go back to the Latin word. And so it should have been spurges, but class meant that we have to pretend that asparagus is a word. Do you think we're moving away from the actual word of the animal because there was no refrigeration in the Middle Ages generally and that probably we needed to romanticize and spiff things up for everybody? 
There's to a little bit. To make them edible. Because, it, and you're getting away from the bloody meat, and so you're going to call it something else. But then in lots of other languages, you just call it what it is. There was this strange thing that went on in ancient England, and now we're just stuck with it. Is there any connection between a language and what they call their food and the people who speak that language? In other words, you know, a lot of people talk about the cognitive impact of language itself and how it changes your thinking or behavior. Do you know anything about that? There's some of that, and you want that to be true. But, you know, for example, there are languages where the word for animal is a meat. And so you would assume that that would be associated with cultures that live close to the land. But there are just as many cultures that don't live close to the land that don't say that as do. And so a lot of it is accidental, so often it can be the most random thing. Like, for example, peas was singular. And so you'd say peas, porridge, hot. There was no such thing as this one little ball of green glory called a pea. It was a piece, just like in French. It's pois with the S at the end. There was no such thing as a cherry. It was a cherries, one cherries, like cerise. But somebody said, well, there must be a cherry. So a mistake became the real thing. But back then, if you said, give me a pea and a cherry, Mm. people would have thought you had a disease. You had me at ball of green glory. (laughs) What about now? Just kind of to jump forward, my chef colleagues and I often laugh about menu language now. You're talking about nouns. Mm -hmm. Pork, veal, lamb, beef, the words that we use. But I feel like adjectives are just out of control. You can't just say salad. You have to say like a petite baby lettuce with a, you know, a lovage and, you know, chervil-coated herb pesto with whatever that's, you know, and it's just so, oh. I'm so stressed out when we write the menu. Because I just feel like my description is never going to be good enough to sell a damn piece of asparagus anymore. <laughs> it can't just be asparagus. It has to be, you know, well. watered by the Queen of England with Lady Gaga's <laughs> blessing or it's not going to get sold. So I wondered, like, oh, linguist on the hill, what do you think about now? (laughs) Tell me something I'd like to know. (laughs) All of that is because we can't be classist the way we were in the past. It used to be that you could walk around with a cane and a fedora and smack people and say, you ruffian, if they offended you. And now we have other ways of lording it over other people, such as beating people over the heads for saying Billy and me went to the store, or pretending that a damned salad is some sort of culinary symphony with all of the terminology. Same thing with wine. It just tastes good. Oh, it tastes like celery, but it doesn't. No, I know. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I feel like with wine, do you agree it's sort of always been that way? Like, yeah, so I get those vanilla notes of lanolin. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't taste that at all. This tastes like grapes. Those are the things I want to say. Honesty. Let's go back to honesty. So here's my question. You're saying the French call their meat by the name, uh, not the name of the animal, but Mm -hmm. when it comes to organ meat, which the French eat a lot of, right? Mm -hmm. Tongue and heart and kidney, Mm -hmm. liver, da-da-da. They call that by the thing, don't they? 
you know, I'm flying blind here because that never actually occurred to me. And I'm going to make a guess that those things maybe were not as prized as much by the Norman French aristocrats of the time. Because and they're organ meat. That, that was the garbage that the peasants ate, and so you kept using the words. Some of those words are French, but a lot of them aren't, and maybe that's the reason. Sean Ramosferum, uh, John McWhorter, uh, allegedly a professor of linguistics at Columbia <laughs> University, has allegedly. been... Um, Telling us about, I don't know quite what to call this one. Where's the boof? We'll I've got, call a, I've got it, okay? a lot of tabs open for what everything you guys just talked about. Here's a fun fact about websites about food in the Middle Ages. They're all in Comic Sans typeface. <laughs> and You're I'm serious? wondering, as like a linguist, do you know anything? Was, was this like the official typeface of the Middle Ages? <laughs> but one of the things I found that was really interesting is that in the Middle Ages, people were literally eating something called garbage. Uh, but, but literally, garbage was the term apparently used to refer to, like, the leftovers of the chicken that everyone, so I guess, if the, the pores would eat. Right. So there's a funny word. Garbage. Garbage. <laughs> and there's a lot about the evolution of how meat was used, how meat was originally just, it meant hard foods as opposed to liquids, and that evolved into specific things. See, this is one of those things that if you went back, another problem you'd have is that words always get more specific over time. So meat was just food. Corn was just grain, or bread was the word for crumbs. And since crumbs are usually of that thing that you bake, people started calling it bread. Which makes me think of now how people say, I don't eat meat, and then the first question they get is, oh, but do you eat fish? Which right. to us is sometimes meat, but sometimes not. In the Middle Ages, that would have made no sense at all. That's and right. sometimes still doesn't. <laughs> Thank you, Sean and John McWhorter. Thanks so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Would you please welcome our next guest, Michelle Humes. Hey, Michelle, what do you do? I am a food writer and a food illustrator. Um, I'm writing my first cookbook right now. It's called The Noodle Soup Oracle. The Noodle Soup Oracle. It contains all the noodle soups. So um, tell us something we don't know, please. Children's menus in America exist because of prohibition. I became obsessed with finding out the origin of the children's menu. I moved to America at the age of eight, and I was handed my very first children's menu. Mm. You'd moved from where? Uh, from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. where I had been eating a you know, very broad diet, and suddenly someone hands me this children's menu, and I'm supposed to choose between chicken nuggets and spaghetti, <laughs> and my parents are eating tartare, and this just did not feel right to me. I spent many years trying to find the origins um, of this very problematic document. Um, I spent a lot of time (laughs) in the New York Public Library going through thousands and thousands of vintage menus, um, and I noticed that the children's menus, they all started cropping up in the early 1920s. Um, And then I looked at uh, trade journals from that time, and I started to find these articles that said, oh no, we don't have any liquor revenue anymore. How are we going to replace this? Kids, we're going to bring in the kids. Hmm. Were, were restaurants at that time not family-friendly generally or didn't cater to families who cooked at home and so on? Well, they were drinking a lot. Hmm. Um, so Prohibition got rid of that too. You, so what's the best evidence that this is um, caused by Prohibition and didn't just happen at the same time? I'm, I mean, the, it's addressed very specifically in the articles. Hmm. It's like, how are we going to replace this revenue? Hmm. And what was on the earliest uh, children's menus? So these things we think 
Well, <laughs> actually, actually, not that far off. You know, these days we think of the food as being very junky and fried. Back then, it was all about children's health, and the prevailing notions of children's health at the time were all about. Well, no one, no one wanted anyone to re- to receive too much pleasure through food because pleasure leads to sin. So it was all about um, plain meats like broiled lamb chops with no sauce. And dessert was almost was always... Was that not just a cover-up for the fact that they didn't know how to make food good? Do you think? Really? You think they'd go to the trouble to make food intentionally not pleasurable? Well, so, so people wouldn't, like, you give them a french fry, they're going to go masturbate or something? I mean, by the way, if your food wasn't good, wouldn't you then be more likely to go masturbate? Yeah. Sean, can you look that up? Yeah. And... and Kids for dessert, they were almost always offered this very sorry-sounding dish called prune whip. Mm. I'm just wondering, why would you think you'd drive up the check average lost from boozing with prune whip? <laughs> How'd I mean, they do that math? The, I know, prune whip. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty inexpensive material, isn't it? They're very endearing prunes. You cook with them? I do, I love them. What do you make with prunes? I really like them actually with, in braises with things like chicken or, or uh, rabbit. Like a chicken marbella? Exactly. Oh. See, that, a, that's dangerously flavored already. It's yes. straight into like sauce territory. We don't mm. want to do that. So what, what was your first kid's menu meal? What did you, or you didn't eat it? No. No. <laughs> the trauma was the possibility of eating it. Well, it was, you know, I, I had just been a free citizen up to that point, you know, eating all sorts of foods. And suddenly it was like, no, you can only have the beige foods. And that just, that didn't seem fair. Hey, Michelle, I'm curious. Um, I know that, um, that a lot of bars and restaurants, the, the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch, I'm told, comes from pre-prohibition when actually bars would offer free lunch to get people to come in and drink. So obviously it wasn't quite free. But then when they couldn't serve anymore, they had, to, they had people coming, and then they increased food. What would the restaurant that made kids' menus uh, have been like before? Was it a fancy restaurant where families are already coming and drinking, and that's where the money was coming from? I don't think families were coming. It was actually just mostly men. Mm. Um, so Prohibition didn't just bring in children. Also, women started to come in. So it's a way of attracting the whole family, just getting yeah. more people to eat by having something that was easy for the kids to eat. Pretty much. Hey, what are the ethics and mechanics of adults ordering off a kid's menu, Alex? Let's say I come in and I don't have a kid and I really want your kid's menu. Wait, I feel that you should at least order it in a kitty falsetto. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, um, etiquette, I mean... People do do stuff like that. I mean, have you ever been in a hotel and ordered room service and wanted the kid menu stuff? Don't lie. Virtually every week. But in a hotel, you can get away with it because you yeah, can pretend you call, your kid you is sick the in the bathroom when they you... bring the chicken nuggets up. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm with that. Um, I hope the kitty menu is... I understand it. My daughter wants the kitty menu as recreation and a break from her mom. Mm. I tried to give her a sunflower green and arugula salad yesterday. That just did not fly. They're supposed to be, you know, a crossword or, you know, some kind of, or crayons maybe that go with the dish. And when did that start, the kind of entertainment part? Um, Actually, they were, like, from the very beginning, um, you know, they were trying to get kids in right away. So all of the the earliest menus had all sorts of beautiful uh, drawings on them. But the, the, the game part was in the 1950s or so. This is when, you know, we had, like, 
highways springing up um, in the post-war years, and everyone started getting cars and taking road trips. Gas stations. Um, <laughs> and about the gas station. Roadside diners were like, oh, we can turn this into some sort of souvenir thing so the kid will take it home. Yeah. So, Sean, Michelle Humes has been telling us about the prohibition roots of the children's right. menu. What more can you add? Well, interestingly, I think a part of this ethical conversation sort of supports the prohibition kids' menu um, argument, which, which is like, uh, to this day, the reason it's unethical for an adult to order off the kids' menu is because the kids' menu is the restaurant selling a bunch of food like at a loss. It's a loss leader to get you adults to order a lot of food and drinks. So it kind of makes sense that they were never profitable. No, no one ever wanted to do it until they really needed a reason, and that reason, based on all your research, prohibition. Also, on, on the subject of when toys started getting involved, apparently McDonald's ripped off the, the sort of toy Happy Meal idea from Burger Chef, which mm. went out of business, and McDonald's didn't, it sounds like. <laughs> I was trying to look at like what, what kids' menus are like uh, around the world, and that seems heavily influenced by... American right. kids menus like in Western Europe they've got some variations like in the Netherlands there's tomato soup is really popular as a starter I guess it sounds sad and uh, <laughs> Sweden has like spaghetti and meatballs Swedish meatballs but like India and China are just like no nah. and coincidentally there's no real kind of discourse of picky eating in those countries either mm. so it's you know do kids demand children's menus or are they just so used to seeing them that they think that that's what they should be you know whining for Michelle Humes thank you so much for playing tell me something I don't know it is time for a quick break when we return more guests will make Alex Guarnaschelli tell us some things we don't know if you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend a future show please visit tmsidk.com you can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show we will be right back Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our theme tonight is food. My co-host is the chef and cookbook author Alex Gornichelli. Before we get back to the game, we've got some lightning round questions just for you, Alex. We'll start with an easy one. Okay. Favorite meal ever? Oh, my God. That's not easy. Um, definitely a croque monsieur sitting in the 6th in Paris. I mm. ate a, just a ham and cheese sandwich mm. and a coffee, and it tastes like ashtray. And there was bus <laughs> exhaust from the street, but it was so beautiful, and I was in Paris, and I was broke. And food tastes so good when you're broke. Alex, name a food or ingredient you used to hate and now you love. Oh, there's a lot. First of all, I've been on a show called Chop for a number of years, which is an unbelievably wonderful show that I actually originally didn't want to be on at all. Why? I was concerned that the show would not be about f- cooking and food and food education and that it would be um, mean-spirited. And I turned out to be completely wrong on all levels. Mm. It was the biggest life lesson that I learned. So the thing about cooking is it's so repetitive to cook in a kitchen, in a restaurant. You cook the same food over and over again. I mean, I've, I've made so much mashed potatoes that it's literally made me want to cry. Mm. Just seeing a potato, I start twitching. So <laughs> chefs have a sort of a, a deranged relationship with food. It's hard not so what to do get you do? Bored. Well, the thing about cooking is it's a lot of other things, I think. It's, an ath- it's athletic. It's a sport. Um, I, I started cooking in a kitchen, and I, I just felt um, what I used to call angry. Now I call energetic <laughs> and enthusiastic. So um, I would go into the kitchen every day, and it poured all my energy out at the stove, and, and I needed that. But 
um, there are foods, your original questions, are there any foods I used to love that I don't like anymore? So I will never eat risotto mm. ever again, arborio rice, patty pan, squash. Mm. I really hate them. They're so annoying. They're s- I, I actually asked you the opposite question, which is something <laughs> that you used to not love Damn. and then came to love. Oh, um, uh, let me think. Dill. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you don't like a food, I think you should cook with it and eat it a lot and really give it a chance like people. Yeah. Give them a lot of chances. <laughs> All right, here's something I always wondered about Chopped. Given how TV yeah. works and that how, how long it takes to shoot something, so I've always wondered, by the time you're eating like the fourth or third person's food, isn't, hasn't it been sitting there for a long time and it's kind of rubbery and cold? No. <laughs> uh, for the record, Alex is nodding her head yes. Uh, the, the basket, your time starts now, and the cooking all happens very quickly. All I'm talking about is the judges eating. Right, but when they finish the cooking round, we are able to go over and look at what they made and taste right then and there. Uh, so even when there is tasting and things aren't piping hot, we do get an immediate view of what's been done. If you were competing on Chopped, what would be your four best possible ingredients for you? I would like flour and maybe duck eggs because they're so luxurious. Some truffles and then maybe something fun like a really good hot sauce. Mm. And what would you make out of the flour, duck eggs, truffles, and hot sauce? Um, I would probably just make some kind of little gnocchi or a pasta dough with the truffles and then maybe some lemon juice or vinegar or something from the pantry to brighten Mm. it. Maybe some pickles, chopped pickles or something Mm. for a little kick and then that the couple dots of hot sauce and you would uh pair that meal with a nice uh, blue slushy perhaps 100 percent. yeah seems only fitting all right quick this or that round for you alex uh, sure. cronuts or raindrop cakes oh i love dominique ansel i have to pick cronuts all right shake shack or in and out in and out but i love shake shack right. that's dirty and yeah. wrong yeah that's tough <laughs> that's political okay whiskey or wine uh, wine. Okay, and finally, brunch? No, I don't, I don't like any meal period that groups two. God love you. I want them separate. All right, let's get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next guest, Dan Pashman. Hey, Dan. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Very well, thank you. We know you as the host of the Sporkful podcast, which is an excellent uh, podcast about, about food and how to eat it. What is your tagline? You have a great tagline. I always say it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. So what do you have for us tonight? Tell us something we don't know. Well, Stephen, have you ever dipped a chip in dip? Have I ever dipped a chip? What kind of a American would I be <laughs> yeah. if I said no? <laughs> um, you may go to dip the chip into the guacamole, and what happens sometimes, especially if you get a little too greedy with the dip, what happens to your chip? I mean, it's a chip casualty. It breaks off, and it lives in the dip, and then you're embarrassed. Then you have to go back with a layer of eight chips at a party (laughs) and really shovel angrily in, and then eat that awkwardly in the corner in the bathroom alone and come back to the party, would be my guess. Right. We call that move Saving Private Ryan. But... um, So clearly we've all been scarred by the trauma of losing a broken chip in your dip. 
And I have done an extensive amount of research to find new and better techniques for dipping a chip into dip so that you can get maximum dip without breaking your chip. And, <laughs> wow. Right? And, um, and you've done this extensive research because all the hard problems in the world were solved. Yeah. And, uh, did, did you just hear what, about Alex's trauma, Stephen? Don't diminish and her he, suffering. So, Dan, okay, so you are saying that there's a, a national tragedy in America mm-hmm. of, of abandoned... <laughs> a lot of therapy bills, Stephen, right. a lot of therapy bills. And I think Alex described the scenario beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, so you went about researching how to solve it? That's okay. right, all that's right. right. I, I spoke to a rocket scientist and a structural engineer. So the first thing that I learned in speaking with a rocket scientist is is that um, when a rocket is launching into space, you have to put a lot of thought into the load, the force that is being placed on that rocket. And it's not dissimilar to a chip that's going through dip. (laughs) First mistake a lot of people make is that they plunge the chip straight down into the dip. And then they do a lever mechanism. That puts a lot of strain on the chip. What you want to do instead is you want to move horizontally across the top of the dip. You want to skim, not dip. Yes, a a, a snowplow, if you will. All right, so you're lowering your load by skimming like a snowplow rather than dipping and lifting like a lever. And then what happens? And and that gets you a lot of dip without breaking your chip. Okay. Another thing you want to think about is the way you hold your chip. Imagine you have a classic triangular tortilla chip. Do you hold your triangular tortilla chip by one point and dip two points? Mm. Or do you hold it by a straight edge and dip one point? I got a... I got a D in geometry. Well, we got a visual demonstration here with paper. So, yeah. You have your triangular chip and you hold it by two points and you do the one-pronged clearly skimming. Is that the right way? If you're going to well, skim, you well, skim with a single point on with your, that to lighten your load? that question, it's less a matter of right and wrong. It's more a matter of thinking deeply about your own priorities <laughs> <laughs> and making a decision accordingly. So I do think you can tell a lot about a person oh by my which God, way they I dip a chip. Oh, my God, I knew this was coming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the kind of person that would hold a straight edge and dip one point yeah. is likely to be a little more, perhaps, risk-averse. I don't agree. I think it's a way of managing your potential greed. You because just, I think we start out like, oh, I'll just have a little. I'm not really hungry. I ate a whole meal. And then, of course, you know you start shoveling food like an animal. That's what we all end up doing, especially guacamole and chips. You eat them, just you keep going, right? When you hold a straight edge and lead with one point, you have a smaller surface for accumulating dip, a larger area to grip, and therefore less strain being placed on your chip, less likelihood of breakage, but also you have a lower level of maximum dip. When you hold one point and, and stick two points in, you have a big surface in which to accumulate dip, but you're only holding onto the chip by a tiny little tip. You're a risk taker. So what about those scooper chips that, that they a, have now? I, uh, I, I, I like the scoop chip uh, pretty well. I like the attempt at innovation. I like that they put a lot of thought into it. I, I, I don't love it the way it's typically used because I feel that the vertical walls of the scoop tend to scrape the roof of your mouth when you insert the entire scoop in. I agree with that. Yes, that's a condition I have identified as Captain Crunch's complaint. God. But, um, 
But I was doing research and I was talking to the structural engineer about tortilla chips, as one does. And he was saying, you know, one of the strongest shapes in all of engineering is an arch. Think of the Roman aqueducts, which are still standing because of the arch. And he said, a dome is a three-dimensional arch. So a dome was one of the strongest shapes in all of engineering. And then suddenly it hit me. What is a scoop chip but an upside-down dome? So you should put it on the other side of the dip? You take the scoop chip, you turn it upside down, you put it on your fingertip like a thimble. (laughs) You can run that thing through cream cheese. I'm never eating dip again, by the way. (laughs) Not in public. Hey, Dan, um, do any tortilla chips market themselves as, like, extra stiff? And what's the line between, like... Yeah, no, uh, um, there certainly are, like, extra crunchy varieties, extra thick. Yeah, But not stiff. That's not their adjective of choice. (laughs) So, Sean, the tortilla thimble and other chip dipping (laughs) consumption methods. Um, I was really excited. I googled structural engineer guacamole chip dip, and an article from NPR came up. And I was like, NPR did a story about this. And then it's like, Dan Passionate. Uh. (laughs) What what I was um, most heartened to find out here... um, as a fan of Dan's, was that people have been obsessing over this for at least like half a century because it turns out the ruffled chip was introduced in the 1950s because chip eaters and consumers were complaining that they needed a heftier chip for dipping. And the ruffled chip is four times sturdier than your regular potato chip or dipping chip. Dan Pashman, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. When we return, more guests will talk a bit about everything we've learned tonight. And yes, we will pick a winner. That is right after this break. Welcome back. Our theme tonight is food. Please welcome our next guest, Barry Joseph. Come on up, Barry. Hello, Barry. What's your story? I'm Barry Joseph. By day, I work in the education department at the American Museum of Natural History. Mm. But at night, I'm putting the finishing touches on my upcoming book, Seltzertopia, mm. the effervescent age. Seltzertopia, which connotes that you're pro-seltzer. Are you, you are you perhaps in the pocket of big seltzer? Or are you, uh, you can... I often keep a small seltzer in my back pocket. <laughs> you approached seltzer out of pure intellectual curiosity or historical curiosity? Well, seltzer is fascinating. Yeah. Would you like me to tell you something I think uh, you don't know about seltzer? A, I think there's probably a lot we all don't know about seltzer. So well, what let, do you got? Let's start here. The first seltzer machine was designed in the 1770s for the British Navy to ah, fight scurvy. I did know that. Yeah, that one I knew. Oh, he knew that no, one. No, 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 I didn't. He knew that one. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The first seltzer machine, you say? That's right. It was made. Do you know who made it? Um, Joseph Priestley, who you might know as the scientist who discovered oxygen. oxygen but for yep. me, he's the man who created seltzer, right, artificial seltzer. Right, because oxygen we could do without, but seltzer... That's right. Yeah. He happened to live next to a brewery, and he was fascinated by seeing what happened with the fermentation above the vats and what would happen if we would bring a bowl of water back and forth and seeing how it got carbonated. And so by putting the water through the gas, he was able to, what he would say, impregnate the water with the 
CO2. Wait, uh, can you explain the science part of um, capturing the carbonation in a bowl? The technique was actually rather simple, and it's amazing that it took us so long to figure it out. If you are able to uh, move the water back and forth through the, the carbon dioxide, it, under pressure, will stay inside once you cork it. Okay, yeah. Right. He took carbonation from the beer vats? Uh, well, he learned that it was possible to somehow move the, the gas into the water. Okay. And once he did that, he had this notion that maybe it would prevent scurvy. He knew that people drank, you know, they took the waters when they went to spas and made them healthy. Scurvy, if you have it, you're not so healthy. Maybe if you drank something mm. that replicated in his lab that kind of liquid, it would make you healthy. And what is scurvy exactly? Scurvy is a disease if you don't have enough citrus Bad things happen. Yeah, if you it's know vitamin that, C and B you were supposed to take, right, for yeah. scurvy? Yeah, and so citrus can provide that. It but, turns out citrus, however, is not in seltzer. And okay. so people were trying to figure out what can we do. And he just happened to be having dinner with the head of the, the British Navy and suggested to him, I think I just invented something that will keep our Navy men alive. And what made him think that carbonated water, seltzer, would be a cure or well, a Well, for remedy? hundreds of years, people left the cities to try and get away from you know, polluted water supplies and get to natural bubbling water that was coming out of the ground, often filled with minerals, which... When people drank it, sometimes they were healthy because they were just getting away from the cities, or sometimes there were some medicinal properties in those minerals that helped them feel better. And because they didn't know exactly why it was, they didn't have the science we had today, it was a general sense that these kind of waters must be good. So if we can recreate them and offer them to people in cities, people must be better. What is seltzer? Exactly. When you know, people say, can I have a club soda? Can I have a seltzer? Can I have a sparkling water? Do you feel like we even understand those basic nuances? We don't, and it's one of the things I take up in the book. But let's start with the word itself. Where does the word seltzer come from? Seltzer comes from a little town in Germany called Niederselters. And seltzers itself means salty waters. It was just <laughs> one of the many spas that dotted Europe. But they, like many of the other spas, figured out how to get that seltzer into a jug. And the entire town, that's all they did. They took care of people who wanted to huh. be in the water and sell that water. And those jugs going around Europe and then around the world took their town of their name, Niederselters, and eventually we now know it as seltzer. Okay, so this was pre-Priestly, I gather. Niederselzer, right. right? So Priestly invented a machine to make seltzer. That's right? right. It didn't have to be natural, sparkling, bubbling, whatever, right? And then he persuaded the British Navy that it would cure scurvy. Unfortunately, yes. And uh, did it? Well, we can all presume it didn't, but what he did do was write it up. And that write-up, then he shared with the world. And there was a, a Swiss manufacturer in uh, Switzerland who happened to read it and get an idea that he can create a business around this. He moved to England, opened his company. We all know it now as Schweppes. Mm. Knowing maybe a little bit more now about nutrition science than we did then, although probably honestly not that much more, um, what do we know about the health benefits or um, costs of carbonation? How is it good and bad for you? Well, in my community, the Jewish community, we love to drink it. We have the phrase uh, greps, which is about burping. You, you, have, you eat that rich food, you drink some seltzer, it's going to help you process it, help you digest it. Is carbonated water ever an ingredient and or? Don't sure. You, so what do, you, what do you use it for? I don't cook with carbonated water per se, but I will say that cooking with champagne, in mm. particular sparkling wine, as opposed to just flat, flat wine, sparkling wine has a lot of really yeasty notes and layers that are really cool depending on what you pair them with. I also worked with a chef who got so mad, we made risotto for like 300 people, and he took a giant Jeroboam of 1969 Veuve Clicquot Rosé and dumped the whole thing in the risotto to kind of fix it and bounce it. The risotto was pink. Mm. But it was so delicious. Mm. 
Well, people use seltzer all the time when they make things. My mother-in-law, of course, when she Batter. makes her, uh, matzo balls, she's going to use seltzer when mm. she prepares mm-hmm. it. So Barry Joseph, um, Joseph Priestley, while discovering oxygen and doing all this, I mean, he was an amazing scientist and you know philosopher, et cetera, et cetera, right? He um, has a seltzer machine. He sells it to the Navy. And how long did they use it for and what were the effects? We know that it went out on two ships. We don't know uh, what happened to those ships. I'm assuming they came back, but I don't think they put in any more orders for additional seltzer machines. Mm. So that part of the seltzer story ends, but it moves on with folks like Schweppes who move on to start making seltzer a business. Uh, first as something that could be sold by itself and then something you could mix with lemon, uh, mix with ginger, and start making sodas and the syrups we'd see in the 19th century. Yep. After the Civil War, the seltzer and the soda industry went from dozens of bottlers to thousands, and interest then peaked around the turn of the 19th century. So around 1900, 1910, Mm -hmm. but then it was just down, 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 decade after decade after decade until the 1970s. And then this little mineral water from France came to America and changed everything, Perrier. And that turned everything around. And interest in seltzer then began to go up and up until we're at where we are today, which I think is the most popular period for seltzer in American history. Really? Uh, in the United States. In fact, I can give you some sales numbers. 64% is how much seltzer has grown in the last eight years, and half of that growth is just in the last two. Now, let me ask you this. Some foods and beverages are so beloved that they inspire songs or poems. I'm guessing seltzer is too uh, prosaic for that. No, seltzer has been the muse to many. And, <laughs> the muse. Uh, and if I can share with you, would you like to hear a little poem? I'd love to hear a little this poem. This is a poem from 1884. This is from the National Bottlers Gazette. I don't know if anyone still reads it. It is still around today with a new name. It was organized by William B. Keller. So this was printed in 1884 by Anonymous. I assume it was him. It's called Ode to Soda Water. This is just an excerpt. Concoction beautiful, inimitable, by every girl art thou assimilated, in quantities unparalleled, illimitable, while man's finances become abbreviated. That was a lovely poem, lovely reading, Barry. Uh, Thank you. Sean Ramosferm, The Invention of the Seltzer Machine. Joseph Priestley, what more can you tell us? I just want to state for the record, because this is a podcast, that Barry is wearing a seltzer T-shirt as well that says peace, love, and fizz on the back. (laughs) So I found out something incredible about Mr. Priestley. Um, It's that apparently he was like really good friends with the Earl of Sandwich, who is often credited with inventing the sandwich as we know it, which is the fact that seltzer and sandwich came out of the same friendship is remarkable. (laughs) And instead of writing that book, I think you should get to work on that screenplay like ASAP because I would watch that movie. Thank you, Sean and Barry Joseph. Thanks so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Please welcome our final contestant of the night, Mr. Russ Roberts. Good evening, Russ. Tell us about yourself, please. Uh, I'm an economist, but I actually am an unusual economist because my job is to actually explain economics to normal human beings. Yeah, yeah. I have a weekly podcast, Econ Talk. There you huge, go. Huge following here in New York. I have co-created two rap videos on Keynes versus Hayek. 
So I get to have a really fun job compared to most economists. That is a pretty fun-sounding job. So do you have something for us tonight? So what do you got, Ross? I really... So I want to talk about potato chips. I apologize, Alex. I know you have some uh, phobias about potatoes, but uh, I was always been interested to how potato chips flavors got on the chips. Do they sprinkle it? And if you know anything about modern food production, it takes place at a very high speed. So you can't do a lot of like sprinkling. It's sprayed on. And then I had the question. Wait a second. Can I? When you say that the, that potato chips need flavor beyond the potato oh, and they the don't. oil and the salt? No, you could be a purist. I'm talking about mesquite barbecue salt. Oh, okay. The flavored salt, potato the, the chip. The flavored segment. I've always wondered how they get it on. And then the Really important question, how do they make sure that there isn't too much flavor too little? Mm. What's the quality control? And you'd think they just sort of look at it and eyeball it and then pick it off the line, but that's too slow. So what they do is so extraordinary and so mind-blowing. It's one of the great achievements of humanity. (laughs) Imagine you're a chip. You've gone through this incredible process. You've been sliced, cooked, right? Okay, now... Now, you're trundling along at a fairly slow pace. Kind of easy going. On a conveyor belt On a conveyor belt. With thousands and thousands of your friends. All of a sudden, it picks up speed at a tremendous pace, and they're now going 15 feet every second. And they do that to separate them. They get some space between them. They pass them through an incredibly expensive, extraordinarily high-tech machine that uses lasers and cameras to scan and photograph all the chips as they go by. No, every chip I eat Every chip has, has been, been scanned and lasered. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful thing. So wait, I missed the spraying part. When do they get sprayed? They get sprayed after they've been cooked. Okay. And then they've got a quality control problem because some of them are too dark, some uh, of them are too light, some uh, are burnt, some have blemishes, right, imperfections. And when you say too dark or too light, that's... Too much a, mesquite. That's a symptom yeah. of the flavoring, or not the cooking. it could be burnt. And here's the incredible thing. It's going at this high speed... And then it goes down at a slight angle, and there's a chasm. The chasm is about six inches long, and the chips going at this high speed are going to be able to leap this gap in the conveyor belt, except (gasps) the machine has analyzed which chips are imperfect, and as they try desperately to leap that gap, a puff of air blows down... (laughs) You're kidding. No, it's incredibly it, tragic. It's incredibly this, sad. This is like dating in Manhattan. <laughs> My understanding is that the camera and the scanning and so on is identifying individual chips. Exactly. And then puffs of air are directed at those individual that exact chips ship. to kill them all. And then the ones that are pushed down tragically. What yeah. have they become? animal food. They become oh. animal feed. They're not wasted. So that's kind of nice. It's kind of nice that they have some so role when you, in life. So when you eat a burger that's got mesquite flavoring, <laughs> it's just from the chips, you're saying. But wouldn't it be easier to fix things beforehand rather than having to spot... In other words, there are the ones that are too heavily or lightly sprayed, right? Couldn't yeah. they just do that better? Well, they do the best they can, obviously, but they don't ever want you to have an imperfect chip. And they don't mm. want you to have a half a chip, by the way. So it also can measure, the lasers and cameras could also measure whether the chips have the right size, which is really incredible. This makes me think of the, I met um, a few years ago, a person who works essentially for McDonald's for their French fries, and if you think about it, they're always the same. Yes, they're very good at that. 
And so potatoes aren't the same all year round. Some Correct. at some times of the year potatoes are far more watery. This I know because for over two years of my life, every piece of bass I cooked was wrapped in a thin shell of potatoes that were sliced and rolled in clarified butter. And when they were watery during the rainy months, it was the death of me. I, yeah. I would smuggle in potatoes from the supermarkets, hoping something wasn't watery. So I understand the plight of the potato, but I don't understand such discrimination. And as far as I'm concerned, there should be like one potato chip in every bag now. I often feel like the bag's so filled with air. Oh, funny you mention that. Chips were invented supposedly in 1853 by George Crumb. Uh, it's Saratoga Springs, New Crumb? York. I, uh, yeah, I wanted him to be spud. He was friends with the Earl of Sandwich. I, I, that's, 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 that's the sequel. That's... <laughs> it turns out the British probably had chips in 1822 or probably before, but 1926 or so, Laura Scudder invents the first potato chip bag. But that was really important because what they figured out then is that you could put, I'm going to say air, but it's not air. We'll get to that in a sec. You could put air in the bag and allow it to be transported. So we often think that it's some kind of sinister plot to fool you into thinking how many chips are in the bag, but the air is actually in there to protect the chips. Insulation for shipping. Yeah, to yep. make them, to allow them to be shipping. And that allows a national brand of potato chips to emerge, which had never been mm. possible before. But here's the coolest thing. It's not air. It's just nitrogen. But it doesn't just cushion the chip. The nitrogen keeps the chip fresh, which is a big improvement. Win-win. Russ, I mean, no disrespect by this. Uh, maybe I do a little bit, um, but you're a PhD economist. Yes. Why, uh, why do you care so much about potato chips is what I want to know. What I'm interested in is how is it possible that uh, we can live as well as we do in America and in the modern world, and it's hard to believe, but how there are fewer people in poverty around the world compared to, say, 10 years ago. How do we figure out all the ways to get more from less. And this is just one of the tiny creative ways that's in our food production that makes it cheaper and easier to have higher quality stuff, to have chips that are made nationally. Because if you're only going to make chips in your backyard, you're not going to have a laser machine. That's, mm. you know, it's just not going to happen. What about kettle chips that are all crinkly and folded and whatever else? So my theory, i got to make a confession. For this show, I stopped and I had a bag of chips. And I noticed that there was very little air in the bag. Uh. And I thought, you know, these chips are kind of stiff. Uh. They're kind of kettly. And I bet they don't put as much nitrogen in their uh. chips because they're kind of self-protected. Correct me if I'm wrong, but did you just say that there is such a thing as a stiff chip? <laughs> Sean Ramosferm, I think we need you quite a bundle for this. I know, uh, We'll geez. call this everything you ever wanted to know about potato chips but didn't have an economist to ask. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't really know where to begin, but I think we should begin with the first thing we heard here, which is that Russ made a rap video. Can we? <laughs> can we? Can we play something? Do we need context, Russ, or no? Uh, just a little. I think the most important thing to know is that I'm not singing in it. I just wrote the words with the uh, filmmaker John Popola. Okay. And uh, it's about Keynes against Hayek, two different views of how the economy works. You see, it's all about spending. Here they're registered cha-ching. Circular flow, the dough is everything. So if that flow is getting low, doesn't matter the reason. We need more government spending. Now it's stimulus season. <laughs> That, that was Keynes, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, <laughs> when I first created that video, I went to NPR in New York and I showed it to the folks at Planet Money. 
And they said, well, let's see what Kesha thinks about it. <laughs> and Kesha was in the building. And I didn't know who Kesha was. Uh. <laughs> I thought Kesha was an intern. <laughs> right? If it makes you feel better, I bet she didn't know who you were either. Yeah, exactly. So she comes in, and she's got spangled makeup on and a big feathery thing coming out of her hair. As an intern would. Exactly. (laughs) Well, at NPR, I thought that would fly. And someone said, I want you to watch this. Tell us what you think about it. And they put a microphone in her face, and she says, that was really good rap. And that was, I thought, well, that's nice. A hip young person thinks that we did a good job. Yeah. (laughs) So, Sean, did anything else uh, Russ said have any truth in it? Uh, <laughs> kettle chips are different because they're not made in this massive industrial fashion. They're made sort of small batch, like your artisanal ales or something, and, and individually dunked and, and lovingly made. There's no air-sucking machine taking out no, little no. crinkly ones. No, there's no, no scanners involved. And another fun thing I can just tell you from personal experience, this is also how your recycling is sorted, using, using lasers and cameras and, 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 and air puffers. That's how they separate your brown glass from your green glass from your white glass, is by scanning it and then shooting it in different directions. So so interesting. Russ, thank you so much for playing something, something I don't know. Great job. Can we give all our guests a hand tonight one more? Great stuff. Our live audience is about to pick a winner, but first, Alex Gornishelli, Sean Romsferm, and I will each weigh in. Remember the three criteria. Did our guests tell us something we really didn't know? Was it worth knowing, and was it demonstrably true? So, Alex, I'm curious to know if anything particularly impressed you tonight. You know a lot as a chef coming in. Did you feel you learned some things? Well, I, I really liked the this, this stuff about the language and the naming of foods and the romance of that. Uh, and I really loved the potato mm. chips um, a lot. I also loved the dip skimming I don't think I'll think about the Taj Mahal as anything but a tortilla chip from now on. <laughs> That's probably, those are probably the things that stood out Very to me. Very good. Sean? As another fan of potato chips, I learned, I think, a lot of information that will stay with me for the rest of my life tonight, including, you know, all about the factories, but also how to dip. Um, but I'm, I'm always, like, struck by a bromance, mm. and this, this Earl mm, of Sandwich. Priestly Sandwich really had you, Priestly yeah, seltzer yeah, business. Yeah. I just cannot believe that those yeah. two things came from yeah. the same place. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start writing the fan fiction. He's going to write the book. And someone in the, somewhere in the middle, we're going to make that mm. movie. I promise you. So I felt like I learned so much. I love the, the idea of the prohibition, the kind of unintended consequence of prohibition. Um, I, too, loved um, hearing about the language. Um, it's funny, potato chips and Russ Roberts, like, I never, I, I hate to say it, I never really thought much about how potato chips are made. And so that was one of those... Um, topics that I learned a lot of things that I didn't really know that I wanted to learn. But um, I, think, um, I think all our guests tonight just brought us wonderful stuff. So before we vote, how about one more hand, please? <laughs> all right, audience, you have heard from us, but we don't pick the winner, you do. It's time now to do that. So please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen. Who will it be? John McWhorter with Where's the Boof? Michelle Humes with the Prohibition Roots of the Children's Menu, Dan Pashman with the Tortilla Thimble, 
Barry Joseph with the origins of seltzer, or Russ Roberts with everything you always want to know about potato chips but didn't have an economist to ask. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to this show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Thanks. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thank you so much to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight for telling us more than we ever thought we could know about potato chips, Mr. Russ Roberts. Congratulations. Now, to commemorate this victory, Russ, we would like to present you with this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge. That is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know about food. Huge thanks to Alex, to Sean, to our guest presenters, and thanks to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Next week on Tell Me Something I Don't Know, best-selling science author Mary Roach is our co-host. My favorite part was afterward, I had him smell a little pad and, and tell me, you know, give me an honest assessment. And he said, this is a wonderfully fresh B.O. smell. It's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>